Amen. Bless this minstrel team here, this musicians this morning. Amen. You can be seated. God bless you. Uh, obviously, you can see, hopefully, that we're going to be uh, receiving communion together. That's always a special time. It's just been on my heart to do it. We haven't done it in a while. And uh, logistically, it'd be kind of tough, but I'd like to almost do it every Sunday. I've, I've gone to churches where my father-in-law goes. They do it every Sunday uh, there. And uh, last time I was there, they passed out uh, goldfish for the communion. That's pretty cool. I'd never had goldfish for the communion. And uh, so I, I didn't ask them. I didn't ask them if that was a Texas thing. So it was good. Amen. Everybody good? Amen. We, uh, today I want to talk to you, uh, and I won't preach too long. I just want you to uh, see some things. Uh, I'm going to put up a couple of things on the screen for you. Restoring our image of God. Uh, to me, uh, it's the most important image we carry is the image that, that you carry in your heart. And when someone says Jesus or God, those thoughts, that, that concept, that ideology that comes up in your heart. In other words, how you view God. And uh, to me, that's a lifelong uh, thing. Uh, and in my life, uh, you know, there's, and it's, it's worldwide popular now, and I preached about it a month or so ago as a title, and some people are calling it deconstruction. Uh, they've gone through deconstruction. I surely have. Uh, I didn't even know that's what, was, what it was. But what uh, deconstruction is is when some things that we once maybe believed about God, things that we were told about God, we found out to be not true. And, uh, and we, we, we pulled down those wrong ideas. Paul called them imaginations of the heart, vain things, he called them, that, that build themselves up against the knowledge or us getting to know the true and living God and to know him as he is, not as religion or any religion has portrayed him to be. And so the Bible uses the terminology about the image of God. Of course, it says we were created in the image and the likeness of God. But then that image and likeness that, that we were created in became marred by sin. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians even said that now we bear the, the image of the man of dust. And he said just like we bear and have borne that image, we also shall bear the image of the one who is spirit and who is life. And of course that's Jesus Christ. And so in Romans chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23, Romans 1, 22, 23 Paul talked about people and about the image and the way that they changed the image of God. And he said in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Um, and you wouldn't think people would do that, but that's exactly what I told you that happened when uh, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, remember, and he went up on the mountain and he was there for, for 40 days and 40 nights and the people got impatient and they told, uh, uh, you had Joshua that went halfway and they told Aaron to, to make us a golden calf and, uh, and so the Bible said he formed it with his own hand 
But he pointed to that, and they, they wasn't saying this is a false god. They wasn't trying to make some idol. They said, this is Yahweh. In other words, this is the god, they said, that delivered us out of Egypt. And, and how weird is that? But that was their image of God because they were, as a people group, 430 years in Egyptian bondage. And, those, and, the, and that, that culture had many gods. And one of the gods was, was, was cows. And they, the, they, uh, they revered them. And so the Hebrews had taken that on. And they said, this is what our God looks like. Now, how many knows we know God don't look like a cow, right? But yet... How many knows that we don't, there's a lot of things that people, ministries, preachers point to and call it God, but God don't look like that either. Come on, somebody. He said they changed the glory of God. How many knows they can't really change the glory of God? Nobody could change his glory, but they changed how people perceive that glory, how they related and saw God. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and he he says that, that whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is what God wants for us, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then you say, well, how does that happen? How do we get formed or conformed to the image of Christ? How, do, how does that happen? How is that process carried out? Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he tells us how. He says, with unveiled faces, we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And when you behold that glory, he says, then what happens is that you are being transformed into that same image. Notice what he says, from glory to glory. A lot of folks miss that. Notice it doesn't say from junk to glory. You start out from a position of glory with God because the Bible says you are the glory of God. It says that. It said man is the glory of God. You're a glorious creation that God made in his image. And God said, but I'm going to bring you from glory to glory. From glory to glory. That's the process. And he says, just as the Lord, uh, by the Spirit of, uh, of the Lord, this is what happens. In other words, so the image that you behold God, then you're conformed to that image that you behold. So that's why, listen to me, that's just why this is so important. So if you behold a wrong image of God, you'll be transformed into that image of God. You'll act like that's the way God is. If you think God is retributive, if you think God is angry at you, then you'll live your life with that image of God and you'll relate to a God that really doesn't even exist. I told you really when many years ago when my uh, deconstruction, I want to call it, and I didn't even know that word existed in church circles, but I didn't even know what was happening to me, but I knew my perspective of God was really messed up, and it was uh, really about the time that I was transitioning here, here as pastor, and it was a tough time, hard time, and I had so many things, so many pressures, so many things going on in my life, and, uh, and I remember some things happened. I won't go into that, it's too long. But, 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 and some of you have heard me talk about it, you know, uh, you know, briefly. But I had, I don't know what you call it, a meltdown, burn down, burn up. But I got really, really angry at God. And, uh, and I remember when the final straw broke on that day for me. I was on a zero turn mowing my 
orchard where we used to live. And I got a call from someone that was kind of like, as they say, the nail in the coffin for me. And, uh, and it was going to cause a lot of hurt, a lot of more pain, uh, just a lot of things. And it's, it's, I know you don't, none of that makes sense to you because you don't know what I'm talking about. But when, and I'm not proud of this, but in that moment, I was so angry with God. And I had been preaching and pastoring for years, for 19 years, matter of fact. Pastor and senior pastor. I had told congregations God's good, and I preached to, to them so long how good God is. But all of a sudden, and I thought I had tried that case in the courtroom of my heart and settled it and won it. And had settled the issue forever in my heart that God was good. And it's easy to say them words until something happens to you and the people that you love. They say talk is cheap. I didn't welcome our guests. Thank y'all for coming. Come back next Sunday, it'll be better. But in that moment, I'm just being honest with you. I don't know how else to tell you. I've always tried to be transparent with you. Uh, I'm on a journey just like you are. But man, I lost it or found it. I don't know which one. But I told God everything I wanted him to know about how good he was not. And I just let him have it. Now, I don't advise that. And you're going to think I'm trying to be funny, but I'm really not. I really thought that I would, I'd probably get a lightning bolt to the head right in the middle of it. Seriously, that's how I was. That's still how I saw God at that time. I saw God that a lot of the hell I was going through, which I had intended just to try to help some people financially, but, but it didn't work out well. And uh, so I was on the, on, the, on the string for a lot of money. And I don't mean a couple hundred dollars. I mean hundred thousands of dollars. And, uh, and so it didn't look like the Lord was helping me at all. And I remember my wife one night told me, she said, well, the Lord's going to help us. And I said, God, ain't, best I can tell, he ain't helping us at all on this issue. I said, he might be helping on something else. But best I can tell on finances, we on our own. And I walked outside and slammed my door. Did I do it, baby girl? I didn't want to hear it. I was hurting. Then I got to come down here every Sunday and preach to y'all and tell you how good God is and what God will do for you. And that made me feel like a hypocrite because I'm telling y'all what he's going to do and how great he is, and then it wasn't working in my own life. So one thing I've never been is a hypocrite. You get what you see. See what you get. You might like it, but I ain't running for nothing. You know what I'm saying? And so it made me feel like a hypocrite, which was tormenting me. I wanted to quit, but I didn't want to quit. I was just in a bad place. And I remember I told God everything I didn't want to. I mean, I just told him. I said, if I had your power, your, your finances, your means, and, and I know how much I love my kids, and if I was in a position that you are to help them, and I see the pain and the trauma they're going through, and best I can tell you, you won't lift a finger to help me. And in this situation I've been in for seven years, you hadn't, and, and I don't understand it. And what I was really saying to God, if you listen to my griping, was I was a better daddy than he was. I was telling God I was better than him. Isn't that arrogant? But I didn't see it as arrogance. I was hurting. You ever said anything when you was hurting that you didn't really... You probably shouldn't have said, don't leave me out here by myself. <laughs> and I remember I was so upset, 
and I went, we had a prayer cabin where I, where I used to live down on the creek, and, and I went down to that cabin. And when I kind of like calmed down, if you've ever seen Open Range, Robert Duvall went off on God on that movie, you know, he got mad when that guy died. And uh, I was kind of Robert Duvall on God, you know. And I went down to the cabin, and I just sat there for probably several hours. It's bad when you're mad at the person you're supposed to pray to. You don't want to talk to him, but there ain't nobody else to talk to. It's like, God number two, would you come in? There is no God number two. And I told God, and I was so sincere, and there was no recording, and I wasn't planning on you know, using this in a sermon necessarily, but I'm trying to help you if it helps. I said, thank you for not killing me back yonder, up the hill. Because I really told him how sorry he was. And I told him he wasn't good. I didn't care what they say. And I said, all my life I was raised in church, said God never fail you. I said, you might not, but it sure looks and feels like you have. And, it's, and I don't understand it. Thank you, number one, for not killing me. That's a plus. Because I, I knew I deserved it and thought I was going to get it, but for some reason you held back the lightning. Secondly, I've been preaching for you for a long time, decades. I thought I knew you, but apparently I got some stuff really wrong with how I see you. And I said, Papa, I'm asking you to start right this moment to help fix whatever's wrong in how I see you. And that started me on the journey of deconstruction, reconstruction. I don't know what terminology that fits. But it moved me into where I discovered by revelation, as Paul called it, the grace of God. I was raised in a church that sung Amazing Grace almost every Sunday, but nobody ever seemed to be amazed by grace. And I don't mean this as a cut to the church, but I never heard one single sermon from the time I was 12 years old to the time that I started Cornerstone Church when I left that church in 1991. Never heard one sermon on grace. Yet the Bible says we're saved by grace. And that would make grace Jesus because we're saved by Jesus. And nobody ever told me that grace is a person. I would hear our preachers mention the word grace, but they would say, don't think you're going to get into heaven with this greasy grace. They would say comments like that. Or cheap grace. And so they made grace almost sound like something that wasn't too good. And yet it's the most important thing because it's Jesus. And it was such a move on my heart, and it's such a, and you guys rode the ride with me that we changed the name of the church to Grace Point because grace is the point. It's not a doctrine. It's not a six-week teaching. It's a person, and his name's Jesus. And I don't know how I had missed that. It's like last Sunday. I, I, my title was The Greatest Message That I Was Never Told. <laughs> and that was the greatest message. And it, and it has... I just couldn't get over it when I discovered how good God really is and who he is and how he is. And I'm still on that journey. I hadn't arrived. 
And I found out that God is such a sweet God, and I, I, I know you probably get, I've used this reference a couple of times, but my grandbabies, I told you, you know, they drew those Crayola pictures of their puppy. And that was, that's probably been a year ago, but anyway, they like to draw. So one, one afternoon they said, we, you know, we're going to draw, they want me to sit there in the kitchen, we're going to draw a picture of you, puppy. And we want you to tell us between Aiden and Addie, which one of it, which is the best. They're always competing. And uh, which they won't ever, I don't let them drag me into that, but they try. And so the, Addie drew hers. She's seven. Aiden drew his. He's 11. Aiden's was a little more, you know, it was just different. They presented those pictures to me, which in my middle drawer of my desk at home, I have them, and they're, they're very precious to me. Now, if I brought those pictures, you it would just you would go that don't even you would in other words you would never look at that picture and go that's Pastor Dale, never. But in their image, in the best way that they could articulate it through crayons, that's what their poppy looks like. Now, one of them made some big ears and stuff. I mean, it was weird. But they presented those to me, and I received them with great joy. And then I hugged them, kissed them, bragged on both of them how good they did. And I said, Poppy's going to keep his pictures. Now, I wasn't planning no, to learn nothing from God about that incident, or whatever you call it, that, that event. Just hanging out with my grandkids. But later, a few days later, I, I was opening my middle drawer and I saw those drawings. And I felt like God said, uh, you know, all that you went through with them, that's, that's, I'm trying to teach you something here. He said, people all over this world have got their image of what I am and what I look like. And he said, they draw it. And they present it to me. And he said, and it's, it doesn't look like me. It's not, it's not exact by no stretch of the imagination, but I receive it. I receive their worship. I receive their praise. I receive I receive it. Some, some people call me by the wrong name. But I receive it. Because they're my kids. Paul at Mars Hill talked to a bunch of heathen people, he said. And he said, you got a statue here to an unknown God. I'm come to tell you who he is. And so Paul told them who God is and and, and he told them, he said, we are all from one blood and, we're, and you are all children of God. That blew their minds. And I want to tell you, that phrase still blows and aggravates a lot of people's minds, especially Christians. Because we think that they're a child of God and, and I'm a child of God, but they're not a child of God. And, and I'm in and they're out and I've got it right and they got it wrong. And, and that is so sad. And it's, it's the epitome of arrogance to think that your image that you carry of God is without error, without fault, pristine, perfect. And that you've got it right, and all the rest of us have got it wrong. It's just, and that comes when you get older like me, and you realize that's not the way it is at all. Papa takes those pictures, puts them on his refrigerator, and hugs his kids because he knows that they're learning. And when we stand before him eternally, we're going to keep learning who he is. You're not going to get there and go, I've got everything. It's going to be boring from here on out. No, ma'am. No, sir. This is going to take eternity for you to see who God is. And he is beyond finding out. <laughs> Amen.
So I've been, you know, I went through the, the grace of God, and, and, and I'm not through it, but, but well, I began to preach it, didn't I, you guys? And uh, every Sunday, you for a long, long time, for years, really, you knew you was going to hear a message about grace in some way. And I hope you hear one about it today because I'm talking to you about Jesus. And God has shown me that he's not who I thought he was. He's not the vindictive, punishing, retributive, harsh, angry, distant, cold, aloof God. He is a loving father. And, uh, and once I've discovered this, then a lot of... Uh, I don't know how to say it, but a lot of, uh, I'm trying to, I want to use a word that'll make you think weird stuff, but I used to be tormented a lot with dreams and stuff and worried about stuff. A lot, all that just kind of went away. You know, I, I have my down days, don't kid yourself, but I used to battle depression, you know, like often. That seemed, most of that went away when I began to get a proper image of who Papa was. Because it's his what you believe that puts you in that kind of mess. I mean, and nobody's, you know, above it. Elijah, you know, Elijah was a great man. And when you say Elijah to a Christian, if they've been to church at all, they think about, you know, Mount Carmel praying fire down. Powerful guy. Well, it also says that he got in the cave and laid on his face and prayed to die. I don't know if you know what that is. That's called a suicide spirit. And he begged God to kill him. And that was right after he had that great service up there on Mount Carmel. See how quick you can fall? And why did he get in that position? He was so depressed, wanted to die, didn't want to live, didn't want to do no ministry no more. What got him there? Because he had a wrong belief in his heart. And he said it in the Bible before he ever went to Mount Carmel and prayed that powerful prayer. He had some messed up thinking in his heart and head. That wasn't true, but he believed it to be true. See, if you believe something to be true, you will live your life based on uh, that you, you think that's true, and you'll live like that, and that'll make you depressed, and it ain't even true. What, what, did, what did Elijah believe? He said, before he went to Mount Carmel, he said, I'm the only one left. And he said that not because he's a liar, because he believed that he was the only person left in that time period that cared about God. I'm the only one left. Well, he wasn't the only one left, but he believed he was. And if you believe you're the only one left, then that leaves it all on you to get it done. And if you can't get it done, ain't nobody going to get it done. So he goes up there, has a powerful service. He thought after Mount Carmel, and he killed all them false prophets, you know, 450 to be exact. Rambo didn't have a good, that record. We're talking about one old man with a, with a sword. Elijah. He killed 450 by himself. He thought when, when he got back to Jerusalem that Jezebel was just going to be at church saying prayers and repenting. And she wasn't. She was even more angry. And in fact, she sent a message to him and said, by this time tomorrow, set your clock because you will be dead by 24 hours from today. And the Bible said, you know what that great powerful praying fire prophet did? It said he ran for his life. And it didn't say when he heard that. It said when Elijah saw that. 
If we had time, we could go to the verses and I could prove it, but you can read your Bible, it's in there. It says, when Elijah saw that. Why didn't it say it like that? When Elijah saw that. Why didn't it say when Elijah heard that? You ever saw your funeral? You ever saw yourself having a heart attack? You ever saw yourself in your little video in your mind of dying of cancer like some other family member that you had? See, when it's bad stuff, when we get hit with these stuff, then you start playing a video, you see it. And it says when Elijah saw that, he saw her killing him. And it terrified him, and he ran for his life. Now, here's a dude that killed 450 of false prophets by himself, and he's running from one woman. I'm asking you, does that make sense? But you know what? I, I bet after he killed 450 people, he was physically and mentally and emotionally exhausted. And you don't do good when bad stuff hits you, when you're tired, wore out, stressed out, and exhausted. Little bitty things will set you off. And make you make dumb decisions. And, and so God comes, and he's real gentle with him. And I see how Papa handles depressed people. He comes in there, and he's laying on his face, on, and Papa says, you know, what are you doing here in this case? Well, I'm the only one left. <laughs> and he goes through that whole speech about how he's the only one left, and he's had it so bad, and everybody else, and this whole thing's going to hell in the handbasket kind of deal. And, and Papa says, you, just, you, 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 need, you need to take a nap. I'm telling you, it's in the Bible. He says, you just need to sleep. So Papa don't try to straighten him out theologically. He just lets him take a nap. Sometimes you just need to take a nap. <laughs> you just need to go to bed and just switch your phone off and take you a good nap. Okay? And then Papa comes back a second time and says, what are you doing in the cave, son? And he says, I'm the only one left. And he goes through that whole litany again. And then Papa says, you need something to eat and drink. Because the journey is too great for you. And so he puts water at his head and gives him food to eat. And he says, eat that and take another nap. And, and Papa, don't try to straighten him out. Don't try to tell him, hey, you stupid. You believe in a lie. He don't do none of that to him. He's so gentle with him. So he lets him get some rest. Lets him eat, get his strength back. Comes to him a third time. Son, what are you doing in the cave? I'm the only one left. I've been, you know, and he tells him, oh, I've done all this. In other words, if, if you know, it, 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 it's, it's useless. You know, it's just not, none of this stuff is working. And then God says to him, because now you're strong enough to hear it. You're not the only one left, son. I have 7,000 besides you who have never one time bowed their knee to the false god Baal that, you're, that you've got exalted up and just winning. She's not winning. The false god's not winning because it ain't even real. And you're just losing your mind over something that's not real. Do you know how the Elijah got out of his depression and over depression? Truth. When God said, you're not the only one left... I can't wait to get to heaven and check out that DVD. But I believe, you know, like, like what? I'm not, I'm not you got 7,000 besides me? <laughs> My bad. I thought I was the only one left. God said, I know you did. I got 7,000 besides you. I mean, this thing ain't going to hell in a handbasket. I got 7,000 people just in this land. There's never one time bowed to bail. Get up, son. Get with it. Now, he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go find a dude named Elisha. And I want you to put your mantle on him. And then I want you to find this other dude named Ahoya. And then I want you to find this other dude named Jehu. And go anoint these brothers and let's get this thing done. 
Because see, it ain't about you. So he goes and finds Elisha and he puts his mantle, which is symbolic of transferring the anointing. And Elisha gets a double portion of what Elijah had. And then he goes and finds Ohio and he, he does his ministry. And then Jehu's the one that rode in into in, in town and, and Jezebel's out the window, you know, looking. And, 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 and Jehu, you know, looks at all those eunuchs surrounding her. And a eunuch is somebody that's been, uh, their, let me just try to keep it, their ability to reproduce has been cut off. And they've been made slaves. And that's what Satan wants you to do, your ability to be fruitful. To cut that off where you can't reproduce and live life and enjoy life. And he wants you to just to be bound to a lie. And so they're all standing around Jezebel and they're just so scared of her. And they've been serving her and waiting on her. And, uh, and Jehu looks up there and he, he looks and sees them brothers, you know. They're all bound by her, believing her life. And he says, brothers, I'm going to give it South Georgia. He said, chunk her down, boys. <laughs> he said, throw her down. And do you know all of a sudden... They believed the man of God that they could do what he said and they grabbed hold of Jezebel that they were terrified of and threw her out the window. And, she, and the Bible said she dashed on the stones and then he took his horse and just made sure she was good and dead. It's in the book. Is it in the book? See, there's things that you think's got you bound but you really have the strength in God to throw it out the window. You can throw that drug away. Just roll your window down and throw it out. You can do what? Greater is he that's in you than, than this world. You can do it. You just have to believe you can. And hopefully when you hear somebody like me, my name ain't Jehu, but I hope you believe that you can do that, and you just throw that thing away. And you don't be bound to that. I want them to... My time's going to get away. I want to put up that, that, that first picture. Um... Uh, now this right here, and to me, I, I want you to, the reason I'm doing this, I want you to think about restoring our proper image of God as art restoration. And, and this here is a picture that was found many, many years ago. It was done in Spain in a small village. Some of you have seen, have any of you seen this? It's pretty famous. People wear it on t-shirts. It's a great meme on Facebook and Instagram, and they'll, they'll put that picture up under it. The caption mostly reads, nailed it. And this is, this is a picture, not that one. Go back to the first one. No, not, yeah, there we go. Just leave that one for a minute. Because they're two different works of art. And this one here, this is the image of Jesus with the crown of thorns. And, and so you can see it had gotten very messed up. We couldn't hardly make it out. And in 2012, in this small village in Spain, they hired an uh, art restorer, and obviously she was an amateur, to restore the picture. Well, this is what she, when she got through with it, this is what Jesus looked like. Now, this first picture on this side, on, on, you know, our left, this is the, the original when it was messed up, and, and it's called... Uh, Esek uh, homo, it's, it's Latin, and it, it, it means behold the man. It's what Pilate said when he brought Jesus out, behold the man. And this is what this uh, painting is called, behold the man. Well, then when she got through with it, and this is just in 2012, then they call it echo mono, which means behold the monkey. And my point in showing you this, is as weird as that sounds, but that's not Jesus. 
And that's not what he looks like. And yet, that's what this woman that did the restoration in her image of him says he looks like. And I can tell you, she caught a lot of flack. Now, this, this image in the Catholic Church has created a lot of buzz in this little small village in Spain because tourists flock now from all over the world just to see this. Y'all get to see it for free. How about that? And, 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 and uh, obviously, she's an amateur. Now, please don't take this wrong, but listen to me. The reason some people's got a messed up view of, of God, of Jesus, is because amateurs have preached to them. Amateurs. And, and, and a lot of preachers, you know, I go to the school of neology. Yeah, that's the problem. Because you got on your knees and everything that hits your mind, you think that's God and you go to preaching it. And you have no knowledge of the Bible. You're preaching from a book that is translated into English that's Hebrew and, and Greek, and you, don't, you can't spell Hebrew or Greek. You don't have any background. You don't know how to, the homiletics and hermeneutics of, of biblical interpretation. And, and you're just screaming at people and telling them that this is what Jesus looks like. And that's dumb as a monkey. And people get a wrong view. And if you see Jesus like that right there, if that's how you see Jesus, you know I'm talking symbolism and metaphors, but if you see Jesus like that, and that's the image that Paul says you're beholding, that's what you're going to get transformed into. And I have met some of them monkey Christians. You know what I'm talking about? Because them the ones that have come on you on Facebook mean. Because the Jesus I describe don't look like that. And don't act like that. And then when I post anything that describes the Jesus that I have seen, then they get mad because they say that's not the Jesus we know. And then they start writing and telling you. The other day, I don't know if any of y'all know this, there's a dude, Hank Parker, that does, used to, I used to watch him years ago. Hank Parker, I believe is his name, fishing guy. Does a fishing show, real country talking guy, you know. But he put something on Facebook, somehow it came across my feet, and he was talking about, he was reading out of Paul, where neither death nor life nor any such thing, neither created thing, things, you know, nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God. And, and that is one of the most amazing passages in Romans 8, one of the most amazing passages of Scripture. And it says, death will not separate you from God. Life can't separate you from God. This can't separate you from God. Any created thing can't separate you from God. That's some of the best news. It's mind blowing good news. And I, I was listening to that guy, and then it was just like, man, yeah, Hank Parker's got a hold of this. Man, that guy's got a hold of this. And, and then I started reading the comments. And most of the comments was like, yay, thanks, brother. That was so encouraging. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And then here comes, here comes, here comes the monkey Christians. Yeah, but, it, but notice it didn't, he said, this brother wrote, but notice it didn't mention sin. It didn't mention sin because sin can separate you from the love of God. That's what you get. I wanted to go on there, and when I can be mean, and I'm not pastoring and trying to keep my name right in community, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be heaven on wheels on Facebook. You just get ready for it. <laughs> I'm going to be commenting. But for your sake, I now I'll be sweet. Try to. But I wanted to say, it don't mention Pepsi Cola on there either. I guess Pepsi can keep you from the love of God. Because if we can now throw in what it don't mention and say now that because it, it don't mention it, that can keep you from the love of God. I said, you chose to use the word. It don't mention sin, so sin can separate. You know, well, it don't mention Pepsi either. So Pepsi can separate you. And my sermon is just as valid as his. Reason don't mention sin is because sin's no longer an issue because Jesus took the way, took away the sin of the world. That's why he don't mention it. 
So then the next, the next painting, uh, now this image here is, is of Christ, and this is actually painted, they didn't know it, by Leonardo da Vinci. This is a da Vinci. Can you imagine? Now, when it was in this condition, somebody bought it. It was in Europe. They bought it for 40 pounds. British money, that's about $49 American money. And, and it, so it was sold for 40, 49, you know, $49, 40 bucks. After it was sold to this person, uh, it, it was lost to, to hum nobody saw it for w over 100 years, 150 years, it never resurfaced. Then it resurfaced somewhere. All this is on Wikipedia. You can check it out this afternoon while you're bored. But, but you know, it was resurfaced again, and somebody saw it. And, 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 and there was something that just was suspicious. They felt like it was, it was a greater painting than, you know, than what they previously thought. They paid $1,175 for it. And, um, and then uh, nobody saw it for many years. And then because it had been turned over to a professional art restorer. And it took this person years and years and years because they had tried to preserve this picture. Uh, they had put lacquer on it. Uh, they had put all kind of uh, uh, compounds and stuff over the years trying to keep the picture from being so marred and going away, and it, none of it worked. And so years and years of art restoration, then you can go to the next one, then... Uh, then this is what it looked like after they got through with everything. That's what the picture looked like originally. Now that's a big difference. And that's Jesus. And, 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 and uh, uh, this uh, picture here in English is called uh, Savior of the World. That's what the title of the, uh, uh, the picture is. And uh, let me look and give you the... Uh, Salvatore Mundi. Mundi. Salvatore Munda, Savior of the World. And so, uh, of course, when they started restoring it, this lady that was restoring it, it took her years. When they got to the corner of Jesus' mouth, they saw a unique thing that confirmed to, to her that it was a da Vinci. It was a Leonardo da Vinci painting. Of course, that rocked the world. Now, this, this picture here, portrait sold in America at an auction in 2017, and no paint's ever beat this price, $450 million is what it sold for. Couldn't I be the dude to buy something for 40 bucks and then sell it for 40? Why can't I be that guy? $450 million of Saudi Arabia prints bought it. For 450 million, and nobody's seen it since. He's got it in his personal uh, collection. The, the, the reason I'm showing you this, there's, there's a big difference between that image of Jesus and the previous image of Jesus. And what had happened to me was so many people had came with their lacquer and their stuff, and they had painted on top of the image of Jesus that, that my image of him was flawed. And I'm not saying it's pristine now and I got it all figured out. But I want to tell you, the Jesus that I now worship, see, praise to, live with, and live for, and he's a lot better than I ever was told in the beginning that he was. Now, I want you to think, you right now, I want you to think for over the past 20 to 30 years about your image of 
of God, of Jesus. Has that not changed? Has your image of God changed from 20 years ago? Has it changed? How has it changed? He's better. He's better. You serve a better Jesus now than you did 20 years ago? Much better. I, I do too. Uh, I wish I'd been told really how good he was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Or I've been at this a long time. And so I try not to be, feel like I got ripped off. I kind of feel like I got ripped off a little bit. But I'm just so glad to have found the oasis where the water is. Because desert living wasn't fun. Now we're going to receive communion. And what this is to me, you know, Hebrew says that Jesus Christ is the exact image of the invisible God. And can I say to you one more time, Jesus looks like God, and God looks exactly like Jesus. And anything that you think about God that does not match and show up in Jesus, you have to question it, no matter where you get it. I've learned, and it's brought me so much peace, to settle the issue that Jesus Christ is perfect theology. And what do I believe about God? Everything that I can see in Jesus. Because Hebrew says he's the exact, not close. God don't look kind of like Jesus. God looks exactly like Jesus. Jesus looks exactly like God. And I would have to be honest and tell you, that's not how I grew up in church seeing God. I saw God as the angry, retributive, ticked off, don't want to mess with you kind of old, old dude. Jesus was the kind son. He would really come to save us, not so much from sin, but from his angry dad. And then the Holy Spirit, well, that's a tongue or a bird or a feeling, or a goosebump. But yet God is one, manifested in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's the bedrock of our faith. It's called Trinity. We have one God, not three gods. Right? So the clearest image of God and who and how God is to me is, is we see on the cross. And, and we see who God is. He is radically forgiving other-centered, merciful to even those that are killing him. He doesn't call for angels to destroy or attack them. He doesn't do anything vengeful to them. He just says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's who God is. Before he went to the cross, he first went with his disciples to Gethsemane. And in that garden, he asked those guys that were so close to him, would y'all just pray with me for one hour? And the whole weight of the world was coming upon him. And, and the Bible says that even in that place, and all those disciples went to sleep on him. What if you had something really critical going on in your family, in your body, your life? You said, you called a brother or sister in church, would, y'all, would you just come over to my house and just pray with me for an hour? And so you go and kneel one place in your living room and they kneel over there and then in just a little while you turn around and they're asleep. That kind of probably sting a little bit, wouldn't it? You think? If you're, you're under such pressure and you just say, would you just come help me pray for an hour? And you look over there and they're getting a nap. That would make you think that's not too much of a friend there. All of them went to sleep on Jesus. And it says his sweat became as great drops of blood. Now listen to me. Jesus ain't sweating blood because he's worried about dying on the cross or fearing that. 
There's long historical records and even where martyrs have gone to their death singing, praising, some even laughing. They're not greater than Jesus. Jesus was not sweating blood because of that. He was sweating blood because the weight, he, he took upon himself the, the guilt, the shame. He took upon sin. Not verb, noun, but the sin. Him who knew knows him became sin. We don't understand the full impact of that, but that, he, he took that upon himself. And he sweated blood. And he goes to the cross, and from that cross, he, he forgives, he loves, he takes care of his mom, a natural thing, behold my mom. That's who he is. And so when I see communion, what I think about, one of the greatest things that Jesus showed us on the cross is co-suffering love. I had somebody tell me something many years ago, one time, you know, it says, Jesus said in his inaugural sermon at the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Everybody in here knows what it is to mourn. It's over a loved one or whatever it is, or just mourning because of the pain, pressure, stress in the life, whatever it is, but you know what it is to mourn. Jesus does too. You have not a high priest that can't be touched by the feeling of your infirmities, but in all points was tempted and tested, even as you are yet without sin. And the guy told me, he said, uh, I want you to picture, because I was hurting so bad. He said, I want you to picture Jesus kneeling in that garden. And I want you to just visualize that in your mind. Okay. Can you see Jesus kneeling and weeping and mourning and praying over the world? The sin of the world, what was about to happen? Yeah. Go kneel by him. Go kneel by him and begin to pray for the world with him. And begin to mourn with him. Begin to co-suffer with him. Well, that's a great exercise. And you're not going to come away from that unchanged. And I've told you that the significance of Jesus still having scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side. Is that you have a savior who will forever be God and man in one. He will always be man. He will always be God. He will always have those scars. And he told Thomas when he doubted, touch the scars. And when somebody, everybody in this room has got scars. You've been hurt. You've been wounded by something. But when somebody that loves you can touch those scars and they see that you've been healed and come through it, it changes them and they know they can be healed and they can come through it. The Bible said we would ask Jesus, where did you get those scars? And he said, I was wounded in the house of my friends. But you have a co-suffering who, when you weep, he weeps with you. When you're hurting, he hurts with you. He, he's joined in that. You have a co-suffering Savior who is not aloof to your problems. He, he co-suffers with you. When you're weeping today in this time, in 2023, over death or over going something in your loved one, Jesus is there with you. And sometimes those tears that you feel and that compassion that brings you to tears that you see for what's going on in the world. Man, it's been a tough week here. Not only what's going on in Israel and the Palestinians and the Israelis and then the rioting in some cities in the streets as they have a you know, pro-Palestinian or pro-Jewish or whatever it is and then people are fighting in our streets. And then we have the mass killing in Maine and 18 plus people just shot hanging out at a bowling alley, man. 
You're just hanging out at a bowling alley trying to have fun. It's horrible. It breaks your heart. And when I read those stories, I hear those things, my heart breaks. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes like even this, I feel that, that tension, that stress, and that, that sadness, and sometimes the fear. And I begin to weep. And I realize that it's Jesus weeping in and through me for those people. Because I'm here to co- You know, when Jesus told his disciples, he said, listen guys, I want to have this communion with you. He was inviting them in to, 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 to this co-suffering relationship. And it, he wants it to be more than about me, me, you know, me, myself, and I. He wants it to be about the world, that we do what he does, that he intercedes for the world. That's what he was doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying for the world. Things in the world. Well, if it don't affect me in my house, I ain't worried about it. Nah, that's not really a good way to live. Because in some way or another, it really does affect you and your house. And I don't mean that to throw guilt on you. I'm just saying, help us today when we partake of this body and this blood, the bread and the wine, to say, Lord, we do this in remembrance of you. And what we're remembering is that when you was on that cross, you are a radically forgiving, co-suffering, loving, not vengeful, hateful God. And you displayed that on that cross. And that's, that's the God that we see. In his clearest form. Somebody said, what does God look like? I say, what does he look? He looks like Jesus. Well, where's the clearest picture of Jesus? When he's hanging on the cross. And he's enduring everything that we throwed against him. And what does he do in response? He forgives. He gives mercy. He loves. He's not a different God than that. Please, I pray your image of him today. If it's got some old lies painted on the image, allow the Holy Spirit to restore your image of God today. Stand with me. I want my folks helping me here. We're going to serve you communion. And you are all invited to this table. Nobody uh, should stay away from this table. Amen? I used to take communion in some of our churches and they made it about me and my sin. They told me to search my heart and see if I could find any sin. I better repent up before I get up here. It's not in remembrance of you. It's not remembrance of your sin. I thought he took the sin of the world away. Does that include yours? Okay, it's not about you. Don't make communion about you. It's about him. If you could look on the front of that table, I said, I believe it says in remembrance of him. That's why we do it. And something hit my mind many, many years ago when I preached a whole sermon on it one day at Cornerstone. And that thief, remember them two thieves? And that one looked over at him and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What was Jesus' response to that dude? What did he say? Well, I'll pray for you. Maybe Papa will let you in. What did Jesus say to him? This day, you're going to be with me in paradise. How many knows that he didn't go to church? He didn't sign a commitment card. Uh, he didn't shake the preacher's hand. Oh my God, he did not say the sinner's prayer. Whew. He didn't get water baptized at the right church with the proper things pronounced over him while he was getting baptized. That brother ain't got a prayer. But yet Jesus said, you're going to be with me today and forever.
That kind of messes up all our churchology stuff, don't it? That's what Jesus said. You're going to be with me. Well, it was a man, don't go there. The rules are the rules. If you got to get jump through all the hoops, that brother would have to jump through the hoops too. But you don't. No, I don't know what that's doing. Reuben, is that my battery? I rebuke you, battery, in the name of Jesus. That's my man. He'll fix it. What do I need to do? Swap. Thank you, Reuben. Bless my sound guy. <laughs> I pray your image of God is, is an image that you'll be transformed into. And that's why it's so important to me that you carry and see a, an image of, of God that is displayed in Jesus. Because they told Jesus, show us the Father. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen me, you've seen God. And if you'll look at Jesus and you'll behold his glory, day after day, year after year, you're going to be transformed. It's not going to be radical like overnight. But you know what? You'll start looking, acting, living, loving, forgiving more and more like Jesus. And you, it, it'll, be, it'll be a gradual thing. It's the renewing of the mind that Paul talked about in Romans 12 and 1. And you won't be conformed by this world's image of God. Just because somebody painted and they point to a monkey-looking picture and tell me that's Jesus, no, -uh, I done met him. That's not what he looks like. When they tell me he's angry and he's mad at me and the reason the hurricane hit New Orleans is because you got stripped joints and that's why God uh, you know, sent that in there to kill a bunch of people. No, that's God Father. That's mafia stuff. God don't do that. And so I don't believe your painting of Jesus. No matter how many people go to your church, that's not my Jesus. My Jesus don't kill people. Well, God sent those floods in Houston years ago, you know, trying to get some people's attention. And he's judging America because of the sin of homosexuality. And so he's wanting, you know, to get our attention. So he's going to drown a few people in Houston, Texas, and maybe the rest of America will wake up. Well, listen here, amateur preacher dude. You need to get out of the pulpit because you've got a monkey painting of Jesus. That's not who Jesus is. And what breaks my heart is all the people that believe that that's the way my papa is. That he would drown people, break legs, scare us into submission. Love don't scare people into submission. Love just loves. Love just loves. That's who papa is. And John finally saw it. God is love. And this is the same apostle that wanted to burn down a whole city. Because they wouldn't have a church meeting for Jesus. He was waiting at the city limits, mad as, uh, as he could be. And, G and Jesus said, what? He said, that they, wouldn't, they told us we couldn't have no meeting in here. He said, shall we call down fire from heaven and burn this place to the ground? <laughs> That'll show them. Jesus said, bro, you don't know what kind of spirit you're in. I came to save life, not destroy it. But you know, some people, some preachers and ministries, they preach a mean, angry Jesus that wants to kill off a bunch of people. Or like, God's now about to judge America. What's he been waiting on then? Why all of a sudden did God wake up and say he's fixing to judge something? 
I thought all that happened at the cross. I used to hear all these, they're not prophetic, it's really pathetic. God's about to. He always about to. God's about to judge America for the sin of homosexuality. That's just because that bothers you bad. That's just your pet peeve. Go take a nap. <laughs> Go hang out in the cave and let God come adjust you. Because he loves those people too. Jesus ate with sinners, right? But you know the New Testament said he also ate with Pharisees. Jesus loved them all. And he impacted them all. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for the opportunity to come before your table and to remember you and what you did on the cross. What you endured, the love you showed, the forgiveness you gave, the mercy that flowed from your lips. I praise you for that, Papa. And I pray that we all continue to be renovated with our image. And the image and the proper image of who you are and how you are will be restored to your church, to your people, and to this world. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you know how we do here on this side? You come over here, middle section, here, and of course over here. So you come and receive the communion, and then we're going to go back to our seats, and we're going to take it together as a church family. Uh, and once everybody is served, then we'll receive it together.
Has everybody been served? Miss anybody? The scripture says upon that night that our Lord and Savior took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He made this statement. He said, this is my body that was broken for you. We receive his body in Jesus' name. On that same night, the Lord also lifted the cup. And he held it up before his disciples and he says, this is for the remission of all sin. We receive that forgiveness, mercy, and grace from you, Papa, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you, nobody leave yet, just if you'll pass those to the the aisles, and uh, we'll try to pick those up right quick from you. We've got one other thing we want to do. What a wonderful day. Amen? Amen. <laughs> if I could ask my elders and wives to join me. Pastor Martin, could you come please? Andy, could you come? And uh, Amen. We want to pray. Uh, what y'all want to do this? In front? Do in front of that? Give me more room. I don't like doing this stuff here. But Ken and Clem, uh, we've talked. I've met with Ken, and, and they've prayed. feel like that their season with us here at Grace Point is, is done. And they're not mad, and they're not running from nothing. They're running to something. But, and we honor that. Dr. Cottle, he's got a saying. It's not my saying. I've heard him say it before. He's, you know, he says, you know, people come to churches for reason. Some come for season. Some come for a lifetime. And we honor everybody wherever and however they're on and where they're on that journey. Lord loves us. Lord's with us. Lord's for us. And... Uh, so we love Ken, we love Clem, thank you for his, he's been here from day one, and uh, he has faithfully, uh, him and her, served this house, served this ministry, served me, and uh, it broke my heart for him to tell me that, but that's just the nature of me being a preacher, and I've never met a preacher that don't feel those things deeply, <laughs> you know, people say, eh, don't take it personal, boy, it hurts. It, you know, I ain't going to lie to you, because you get close to people. And the fact that it does hurt is proof that you care deeply, or it couldn't hurt you. When somebody does something out on that social media and sends me some nasty something, I just easily hit delete and say, Jill, what's for supper, baby? But if somebody I love does that, then I don't eat no supper for a long time, because it just messes me up. But I love Ken and Clem, and and uh, we know they're blessed, so we're not trying to throw a blessing on them, but we want to bless them in this new season, wherever the Lord would lead them. Uh, we know they go loaded with, with grace and with this message of grace, and, uh, and we just uh, pray for them, love them. Uh, still going to hug them in Walmart. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> and yes, sir. celebrate the victories and weep when they weep. Uh, 
and, and we'll continue to do that. Amen? Amen. So I want you to join me as we pray. Uh, pray over them. Come, come on, Mark. Y'all come around, guys. Come on. Heavenly Father, we lay our hands on Ken and Clem. And thank you for this man and woman of God. Thank you for their lives, their testimony, that they are living witnesses, living epistles of your grace, goodness, and mercy. We thank you for all that you've put in them and all that is yet to be placed in them in your kingdom and how that you would continue, Father God, to, to be that witness through them by the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the, the, their lives. They're both just entered into a new a season. They both retired from their vocations. I pray that they would enjoy uh, these years that's before them, that they would be able to enjoy their family that lives across this country, that they'll be able to travel. They'll do all the things that, that they desire in their heart, that you would bless them financially. You'd bless them in every endeavor and everything that they do, and they would just rest and be happy and be joyful and be used wherever they go by the glory of God. So we, this family, this church, this leadership, we bless them in your name. We send them forth with blessing, and we thank you for them, Father, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. must speak into your life because we've walked together many moons many moons we walked together Ken you know when you went to the school the kids call you Mr. Dillon Marsha Dillon <laughs> yes sir <laughs> that's what you reside as the kingdom of God Ken is your jurisdiction yeah. you yeah. continue to be Ken Martin. You continue to be Ken Martin. Mm -hmm. You are a man of God. There's much residing in you. There's much that is within you. There's wisdom. There's wisdom. Wisdom is to see things from God's perspective. So you, you see things from God's perspective and you're acquainted with scripture. That's, I love to walk with men that are acquainted with God. Yes, and acquainted with God's scripture. Yeah. So I don't want to say too much because I'm getting emotional. Yeah. <laughs> but the kingdom of God mm. is your jurisdiction, yes, Mr. Marshall. Word. It's mighty strange your name is Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> you remember when you went to the school, I say, yes, you were there for a reason, yes, kid. Sir. You yes, were there sir. for that season. I say, there's kids that needed you. There are male right. images that need you. Mm -hmm. So there's people that need you where you walk, each step that when you walk, when you walk into a restaurant, yes, when you walk into a store, when you go into another city, yes, Lord. you be Ken Marshall. Praise God. Amen. Thank Praise you. God. I love you, man. Thank you. My big brother, I've been walking with you a long time. Yes, sir. We at this church because you and Clem. Came from Valdosta, came to Valdosta from Abilene, Texas, and they came before us. Hmm. But God's telling me to tell you this, and a lot of you that are a lot older listen to what I'm saying. We heard of the Joshua generation, there's now a Caleb generation that's coming up. You're part of that Caleb generation. 
You're finna go take that mountain that God has promised you, and you have warred with other men and took the mountains and fought their battles. But God, it's now your turn to go take your mountain. And that's just what Ira was just saying about the kingdom. You have jurisdiction in the kingdom wherever you step your feet. Walk in that Caleb anointing and go war for whatever God sent you. Wherever the sole of your foot tread belongs to you in you. Because now the kingdom is spreading with a message that God is planted and sending out about his grace and his love. And he's sending many people out. But a lot of people forgetting about the Caleb generation. They keep looking at the younger ones. Hey, wisdom, experience, maturity. You have seen God in a different way than most people see him. You have learned of God and been taught of God by a man of God. Now you go walk and take those mountains that God has for you. Clem, man, you have sown into me. You have raised me. I was that kid on your front porch, didn't even know how to be a husband, didn't know how to be a father, and you spoke wisdom into me. You don't just speak to women and children, you speak to God's people, just like Papa was talking about earlier. God's people, God's heart for his people is in you. God said, spread that wherever you go. The Caleb generation, the Caleb generation. Papa, that's all I have. Well, I just want want to thank God for all of you. You know, the kingdom of God is about the Lord, but but really, it's about you. You know, it's about you. And um, I just want to thank God that He He has given me the opportunity to touch lives here in this in this fellowship. And um, you guys have also impacted me. You poured into me, and and uh, I've become a more seasoned Christian, a better, better Christian. Uh, one to live for the Lord even the more, even as I, I interact with the body of Christ. Uh, I want to smell like sheep, you know. Uh, I want I want you to really know the love of God. I don't want to want you to hear about it. I want you to experience it, and. Um, and that's whenever you, that's why whenever you see me, you're gonna see me with a smile. You know, you're gonna see me with that joy, you know, because um, that joy comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord and he wants you to have it. He wants you to have it. You know, so um, I love you, I love you, I love you, and I thank God. Apostle, uh, just like Martin was saying, you've, you have poured so much and to me, because of you, I do see God in a different image now. I do see God as a, as a loving. As a loving father. I used to think that he was just waiting. Waiting for me to mess up. Then I'm going to get you. But because of you, I see him as a God of love. It just... This loves me. This is loving. And even with the season, even with this move, you preached last week that road to Emmaus. God loves you. When you're going to Jerusalem, and he loves you when you're going to Emmaus. You know, so I just think I love you very much. Thank God. And Jill, 
Love you too, First Lady. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for loving, loving on us, loving the marshals, loving our children. And we just thank you that the body here has, has, has accepted us. And, uh, and it's not like I'm gonna be gone forever. You know what I mean? I'm coming back to visit. Will I be welcomed? Yes. Okay, okay, welcome. <laughs> I'm coming back to visit, thank God. Amen. Love you guys. God bless all of you. Love you.